Well, hey, good morning again. It's uh, great to have you joining us. And uh, it's always weird when I say that because I can't see you. So I'm making a lot of assumptions that you're there with us and uh, you're watching and uh, worshiping together with your family and uh, have your Bibles all ready to go. So as we dive in this morning, um, I, I, I going to put a picture up that you may recognize, you may not. Uh, so do you know what these are? Do you recognize what's on your screen? I'll give you a couple of minutes because I know you can't answer. You could raise your hand and wave at, yes, I do, I do. Well, uh, without any more uh, drama involved here, uh, these are handwritten letters and envelopes. Now, now you can tell what that is, right? Handwritten letters and with the reality of uh, email, texting, uh, Facebook, FaceTime, cell phones, all kinds of social media, writing letters seems to be uh, something that has faded away, a practice, an exercise that just is not what it used to be, certainly. A kind of a lost art as a means of communication. I, when I went away to college, I left to South Jersey, Cherry Hill there, and, and drove all the way out to Iowa and started Bible college. And uh, as I did that, that's a long way to the center of the country, from New Jersey to Iowa. And uh, my mom wrote to me every week, faithfully wrote me a letter every week. Now, uh, my return letters were not so hot. She was like clockwork. I wasn't even close to clockwork. Uh, my clock died, the battery ran out, it got unplugged, whatever it may have been. And, uh, and yet my mom wrote faithfully week after week after week. Jane's mom still writes to us at 92 years old every week just about. In fact, I had been talking to Jane about this, walked out to the mailbox yesterday afternoon, and sure enough, here's a letter from, uh, from Jane's mom. Um, one summer in my college years, after I'd met Jane, gotten to know her, and, and began to realize that she very well could be the one, uh, probably was. Uh, I went home for the summer, worked at home. She went home for the summer. She got a job, worked at home. I was in New Jersey. She was in Iowa. And Jane wrote me almost every day of the week. Almost every day, I would get a letter in the mail from her. And again, sorry to say, my return letter writing was pretty much non-existent. Uh, we didn't have cell phones, but I called her maybe a couple of times, and it cost more money than, obviously, to make a long-distance call. Some of you have no idea what that's all about. I thought that would excuse the lack of letter writing, but mm, there's just something about responding to a letter that's significant. Well, the New Testament section of our Bible is full of handwritten letters, and... Uh, uh, today, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians, Paul's handwritten letter to the believers in the city 
of Corinth, the church in the city of Corinth. Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, as we, uh, as you find your place there, um, I, I, I just want to say I've got a picture that I uh, put up for you or we'll have there of uh, Mark and Diane Hensler. And uh, I, I saw that picture. They've had it out. I think it's on their Facebook uh, page. But uh, that is Mark and Diane standing in, yes, you guessed it, Corinth. And that's the Temple of Apollo uh, behind them. But I just thought it'd be a good memory as I was thinking through that, a good memory, a reminder for you to pray for Mark and Diane who are now in Egypt serving there and uh, been there just about a month or so now, uh, went through COVID soon after they arrived and are serving God faithfully. And you pray for Mark and Diane, but there they are when they were ministering in Greece in Corinth. Now, as we think about it and as we begin our study, encouraged you before, uh, have your Bibles out and ready to go. And it may be your your uh, tablet, it may be your smartphone or laptop, whatever it may be while you're at home, but certainly here in the auditorium in a couple of weeks when we're back, have your Bible, tablet, phone, whatever means you use to look at the Word of God, have it ready to go, be ready to mark it up, be ready to underline, be ready to circle and highlight, take notes so that you can be aware of all that we're talking about as we go through and learn from what Paul is writing in this handwritten letter to the church at Corinth. Now, when you and I write, or when we used to write letters, we followed uh, an accepted format, a format that we probably had been taught in school or by our parents about how you put together a letter and always would begin, and if it was my mom, right, Dear Glenn, and then there would be greetings and an opening. Uh, how are you? And she would go on to talk about things. And then the body of the letter, usually my mom was updating me on all that was going on at home and in the church with my sisters, my dad, and all the rest of that. And, uh, and then she would get to the end of the letter, the closing, and, and it was, well, I better get going. I've got to do this, or I've got to get to work, or I've got to get supper ready and uh, close it off. I love you, Mom. And that was the letter writing format. Well, ancient letters, letters in Paul's day, uh, in Greco-Roman day there in, in the 50s, as we mentioned last week, would also have a conventional or typical format to the letters that they would follow. And, and uh, it would typically be uh, similar to this. You would have, as we uh, talk, the salutation, the opening of the greeting, and, and the, the writer would identify himself as the author, and then identify who it was to, the addressees, and then there would be a greeting. And, uh, and then in Paul's means of writing, he would then throw in a, a thanksgiving uh, for them. Uh, so many times there would be a prayer and or a praise, but there was something that Paul was thanking his audience for. 
And then they would move into the body of the letter, just like when my mom wrote or when you and I would write letters and, and whatever the main section of, of, of the point why we're writing. And then, of course, when we communicated that, we get to a closing, a final greetings, and, and that would be the letter. That's how it would end. Now, I, I throw that out there for you because we need to be very careful understanding, just like you and I, when we wrote letters, uh, there were means, a conventional, typical format for writing letters when Paul wrote letters. And in Paul's letters, and I would say the Thanksgiving thing was probably unique to Paul. That wasn't typical in the format, maybe for secular writing, but it was there. And uh, it, we, we want to make sure that as we understand understand when we look at Paul's letter and the way he wrote that we're not overemphasizing or giving any undue emphasis to that which is just typical or that which is just part of the conventional. And so as we work through this, we would want to look at things that might be unusual and then see what was it that was different? Why was it different? And why was Paul uh, giving us that emphasis? And then we could try to figure that out and probably come to some conclusions that may have some lessons for us to learn. So as we look at this now, let's just take the outline of uh, the conventional letter writing form for Paul, and, and we'll just use that for our text today. So here it is, the outline of Paul, again, the same format, uh, chapter or one and the first three verses would be the salutation. And in verse 1, Paul identifies himself and Sosthenes as the author. We'll look at that again in just a minute. The addressees is writing to the church in Corinth, right? There it is. And then the greeting, grace and peace. And that would be how Paul wrote. So, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 1. Actually, there would be a thanksgiving that would come on the end, verses 4 to 9, and this will be our text for today. So, let's look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so, here it is. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So, there it is. Paul's identifying himself as the author. Now, before I mention these three words that I've got highlighted, called apostle, will of God. I just want to again mention Sosthenes. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Sosthenes was, uh, we don't know for sure, can't prove it, but I have the sense, as many do, that this is the same Sosthenes that we were introduced to back in Acts chapter uh, 18 when he was beaten or 17, excuse me, when he was beaten for the proconsul, the governor of Corinth, uh, that area, Gallio, and uh, somewhere along the line, he had been the, the synagogue leader, and we think got saved. I believe probably it's the same guy, and he had gone with Paul to Ephesus. Whether or not he was the actual writer when Paul was dictating the letter, we don't know, but certainly he was there in Ephesus as Paul was writing, and uh, that's who the Sosthenes is. But let me draw your attention to those three words there as you look at verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And as we look at those three words, phrases together, this wouldn't be part of the conventional, typical way of writing a letter or even for Paul to give so much detail to himself as the author. Um, but 
he did that for a number of reasons. I believe because primarily Paul's authority in the church at Corinth was being questioned. And as we move further into the book next week in, in verses 10 to 17, we're going to see the division that existed in the church. And we're going to see that some were following Paul, but others were following Apollos and others Peter and others Christ. And so there was a, a divided uh, mixture amongst the people in the church at Corinth. And those who weren't following Paul were questioning his authority. And in other ways throughout the letter, we'll, we'll see Paul address that issue. And so Paul wants to emphasize that he's been called by God. As we move further into the letter, we're going to talk about what it means to be an apostle. And do apostles still exist today? Or were they simply a first century thing, a, a gift of the Spirit that was only? Were they individuals that were only existent then. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. What was the requirement specifically to be an apostle? But Paul identifies himself as an apostle called of God. And that happened on the road to Damascus. You can check that out in Acts chapter 9 when Paul met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. But it goes on and it says, by the will of God. Paul didn't just make this decision. He didn't on his own decide to, I'll be an apostle. I'll plant churches. I'll lead this church in Corinth. No, this was God's calling in his life to be an apostle, one who was sent with a message, and it was about the will of God that he was obeying. So there it is, and as we understand the assurance of God's authority in Paul's life and therefore Paul's authority over the church there at Corinth. Verse 2, as we go on, and we see now that, okay, here's those to whom Paul is writing, to the church of God in Corinth. We've talked about that. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And we looked at that last week. Let me just review again as we do that. We talked about what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart. We talked about this in two ways. In fact, we look at these phrases, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Really sanctified and holy are the same root word. The idea, they're synonymous. The idea of holiness is involved with both of those words. And sanctification is the work that God does in our hearts when we are declared to be holy, when we believe, when we by faith trust Jesus Christ as the one who alone can forgive our sin. And we acknowledge that sin and believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin. We are saved. We are forgiven. And God declares us to be holy. That is our position as a child of God. We become a member of the body of Christ. Our position, we're declared to be holy. But then when he says, uh, and called to be his holy people, we're called to be holy. That's to be not just set apart in position as a child of God, but to be set apart in our practice, the way we live. 
In other words, the way we live ought to match our position, what we claim to be as a child of God. People ought to look at us and say there's something about him. There's something about her. God is in their life. See, when we've been given the position of a child of God, we are expected to, in practice, live that out. And the idea, saints must live like saints. And I gave you a a phrase to write down. And if you didn't do that a couple of weeks ago, I want you to do it now. And that phrase is this, God's holy people must become what they already are. God's holy people must become what they already are. And if I was going to kind of look at a phrase that would sum up the theme of the book of, Cor- uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, this would be it. God's holy people must become what they already are. We've been given a position of holiness, set apart unto God as his child. We must live out in practice that holy life. So that's what it is. Saints must live like saints. And then as he goes on in verse 2, he says, called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul isn't just now talking to the church at Corinth. He's talking to those everywhere, those that have been sanctified and called to be his holy people with, together with all those everywhere. We're talking about other local churches throughout Achaia, southern Greece, and into Greece, and into Asia, and Europe, over into Italy, over into Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and, and all over the world. Those who, everywhere, who call on the name. You know who else that means? Us. That's right, us. Those, together with all those everywhere. And so Paul is addressing not just the church at Corinth. He's trying to help them to understand, hey, it's not just you in the city of Corinth, in that church. There are believers and churches all over the place, and we are together. And as he says there, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, all our Lord and ours, he says, It's important that they understand they're part of a bigger picture, and we'll talk more about that. And then verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace and peace, again, that was pretty typical, pretty conventional, and the, the grace would have been the uh, the, uh, known by the Greeks, by the Romans there, would have been something they'd acknowledged as a, as a greeting. And then the peace would have been a Hebrew uh, recommendation, not a recommendation, but addressing the Hebrew people. They would have, they, they would regularly call to each other, shalom, peace. And uh, that's what was going on. So as they move through there, uh, we find out, and of course the typical Uh, writing would have had that, but Paul's twist was grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, from the Father and our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Now then, verse 4. So as he moves through the letter, that's the, the salutation, the greeting, the uh, acknowledging who's writing, who's he writing to, and then, hey, grace and peace. And then we get to verse 4. And Paul says this, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given in Christ Jesus. Now this typically, in Paul's letters, he would take a time to to, as we mentioned, say a word of thanks uh, for the people in the particular church to whom he is writing. And, and sometimes it would be in the form of a praise to God, or it might be a prayer for the people in the church uh, to whom he was writing. And so an opportunity to thank God for what had been happening. Let me give you an exa- a couple examples. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Uh, We find this is what he said, Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Write this down and you could check it out. In fact, you could look at all the greetings. Now, there's not always a thanks in every one of Paul's letters. But here we have in Romans, Romans, the, the letter there. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all around the world, all over the world. He says, people know about your faith as the Roman church. We find the same thing in, in Colossae, to the church of Colossae. Paul wrote this, verse 3, chapter 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith. He's, he's praising them. He's thanking God for the faith of the Colossian believers. Not only the faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people. In other words, the faith and the love of the Colossian believers was known. And Paul had heard about it. And he's thanking God for what that, that church has done. Well, we get to the church at Corinth, and you heard as we gave an overview last week, uh, there's not a lot to be thankful for. I mean, this church was a mess. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about it this morning, but what, what could Paul say? What could he thank God for? How These people that was praiseworthy or thankworthy, I mean, here's the church, hey, they're, they're divided, a, a whole lot of people following all kinds of different people. Uh, they didn't discipline an immoral person in their midst and seemed to be okay with that. Um, they were talking about taking each other to court, suing one another. And wow, how they abused the Lord's Supper. Unbelievable. Um, their spiritual gifts. It was more about them than it was about the church and serving the church. And, and when we get to the end of the book in chapter 15 and, and some of the Corinthians, a significant number it must have been, were questioning the resurrection of Jesus and of believers to follow. And wow, so what in the world is there to thank God for in the lives of the Corinthian believers. Well, here's what Paul does, though. He's a master at this because I always thank my God for you. Now, he doesn't have anything to say about their love or their faith or their service. He says, because of his grace, 
Who's great? God's grace. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given you in Christ Jesus. In a sense, <laughs> Paul is thanking God for God. He's thanking God for God's grace, for what God had given the believers in the church at Corinth. You know what Paul was doing? He was exercising grace. By doing that, Paul, in the opening of his letter to the church, Paul was being gracious. Sometimes the hardest thing for God's people to do in showing grace is to show grace to God's people who aren't living holy lives, who aren't practicing holiness. Even though they've got the position as a child of God, they're not living out that holiness. They're not saints being saints. And sometimes when that happens, we'd just as soon bring the hammer down the Bible and pound them over the head with the truth about how they're not living as they ought rather than be gracious, be as gracious as God is. And Paul is exercising grace uh, to the believers in the Corinthian church. You say, what in the world is this grace? What is grace? Well, it's this. Grace, first, is undeserved favor. We don't deserve the favor that God gives us. It's God's enablement. In other words, it's grace that set us apart in position as a child of God. Now, as I was studying that this week, it, it hit me. I had never seen that, thought about that before. That's saving grace, all right? Set apart in position, a position of holiness before God. That's God's saving grace. It is the grace of God. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God. See, that's a set apart a position. That's saving grace. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be forgiven. But in God's grace, he forgave us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But God's grace, undeserved favor in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive our sin and give us the position of a child of God, saving grace. But when Paul went on and talked about what it means they're called to be holy, to live out, saints living as saints, he's talking about sustaining grace. He's saying that also it is God's sustaining grace that keeps the believers in the church at Corinth going. So there you have it. We're talking about saving grace, sustaining grace. Many times we think about God's grace only active at our salvation. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. But you know what? We're told throughout Scripture that it is also God's grace that enables us, that strengthens us, that helps us to grow and to serve and to be all that God has saved us to be. It's that sustaining grace that will allow us to practice the holiness of God in our lives. So what are the evidences of God's grace? 
As Paul thanks God for his grace in the lives of the Corinthians, you and I might say, what grace was that? There's nothing evident there. There's all these problems that are being written about in the letter and the, the, that are true of the church. Well, it was God's grace that saved them. And it would be God's grace that would get them through and sustain them and help them to obey all of what they were going to hear from Paul as God's way of practicing holiness. So let's look at these next few verses then, verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, as we read, For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. So what are the evidences of God's grace? The first one is ministry ability. Ministry ability. Uh, enriched in every way is what Paul says in verse 5, right? Enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. The, the idea there was that with the speech and knowledge was eloquence. It was the ability to effectively express what they know. As God gives them knowledge, as they come to an understanding, as they gain wisdom, it was to have insight, the insight necessary to communicate it, to understand and apply that knowledge. And, and as we'll see later, this idea, uh, uh, speech and knowledge were some of the gifts of the Spirit that, that had been given to the church there to the believers in Corinth. So this was the idea, ministry ability, it's the help, the enablement to serve. I got to ask you this morning, how are you serving? How are you serving God in your local church, this place that we call heritage? Are you serving? You see, we're going to see as we go through this letter that each and every one of us who know Jesus Christ, that has the position as a child of God, Part of the practice of that holiness is to serve God. God's given us the sustaining grace, the ministry ability that we need to serve him. And he goes on as we look. Well, verse 6, he says this um, as we talk about it. The, the being enriched means you're spiritually wealthy. You have everything you need to serve. And then he says, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. The Corinthians really were saved. They really did respond to what Paul had told them about Jesus. They really did trust Christ. And the spiritual gifts that they were, that they'd been given, that Paul is talking about, them being enriched with knowledge and speech are an evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You don't get these spiritual gifts if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And you get the Holy Spirit when you trust Christ to save you. So God thus confirming our testimony. In other words, they were saved. But were they serving? And he goes on, and, and as he looks at verse 7, he continues on talking. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You don't lack any spiritual gift. 
You've got all you need to serve, to minister to the believers there in the church and to reach those outside. God's grace had enabled them to be able to serve as they wait for Jesus at the rapture. Now, Paul says, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I got to ask you, we know as believers today in 2021, Jesus is coming again. Are you waiting? Are you eagerly waiting? You know what that is? That's an expectancy. I can't wait. How is that our response to the return of Jesus? I'll tell you, I'll tell you an illustration. This morning at 5:20, the power went out at my home. And it would have been here at the church too. Whatever the grid, however big it is, uh, Commonwealth Text told me 446 customers. Well, I didn't care about the other 445 because my power went out and I was working on my message. I was trying to get everything in place, make sure I had it down, and my power went out. Wow. And I'm like, okay, Lord, how long is this going to be out? Because if it's out a long time, we can't even go to the building. We can't be in the auditorium. There won't be any power there either. What are we going to do? I was eagerly expecting and waiting for the power to come back on. And about 20 minutes later, it did. Are you expecting Jesus Christ? Are you eagerly waiting, anticipating his return like that? Well, that's what Paul says was characteristic of the believers there in Corinth. And uh, you know what? Whenever the Bible mentions the return of Jesus Christ at the rapture, it is always in the context of motivation for godly or holy living. When Jesus talks about that, he's always talking about, there's always some kind of reference to the way we ought to be living our lives. And that's what he's talking about right here when he says um, that, that when Jesus Christ will be revealed, uh, right here he's talking about the return of Jesus Christ to take the church with him to heaven. That's what we call the rapture. And it ought to motivate us to serve God. It ought to motivate us to live holy, godly lives. The any moment coming of Jesus Christ ought to move us to action, folks. We have a significant number of people who are members here at Heritage who are not in regularly involved in our Sunday morning ministries. The number is actually 95, 95 people who are not actively involved in the Sunday ministries of this church that spills over through the week, who aren't serving God in a regular way in the ministry of heritage. Listen, Jesus is coming again. And as a child of God, it is critical that you not just accept the position of being holy, but that you live a holy life by serving him. God has given you the ministry ability you need. We must live, we talked a couple of weeks ago, that we must live as those who will give an account. Remember we talked about the Bema, 
that was there in the middle of Corinth, the place of judgment, we will have to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ for the commendation or the condemnation. Not condemnation because of sin, but as we're going to see in chapter 3 of Paul's letter here to 1 Corinthians, it's about losing reward, not having any reward that we have earned to present to him. And so as we talk about that, we must live as those who will give an account. And that account will happen when Jesus comes again. If we're eagerly waiting for the return of Jesus Christ at the rapture, we got to be busy serving. Uh, That's what Paul is talking about. And then he says the grace. He goes on to verse 8. And as he's talking about this grace, he says, God, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a blameless standing. God's grace is evidence in ministry ability, and number one, and in number two, blameless standing. Ministry ability and blameless standing. There it is. Those two things are evidences of grace. You say blameless. Wait a minute. The Corinthians? You just talked about all the things that are true about them. How can they be blameless? Well, he's, when he talks about that, we're not talking about the sin that condemns us to eternity in hell. We're talking about uh, being blameless because we've been forgiven. Uh, we've been declared to be righteous before God because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus died. He took our place. He took our sin and forgave us and we have been declared blameless. That's the position of holiness. The word blameless means can't be called in. Do you ever get called to the principal's office? Sorry if you're out there and you're a principal. I don't mean to make you the bad guy, but that was an illustration that came to mind. You don't, you won't be called in. Blameless means unrebukable, unimpeachable. We know something about that word these days. There are no charges or accusations that can be made that will hold water, that will stand. Why? Because of our position before God. We've been declared holy. We've been declared to be children of God. We've been declared forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. That's eternal security. You see, a blameless standing. And Paul is praising God for the grace that has given the Corinthian believers, those who have the position of holiness, how they will one day stand before God blameless. Wow. And then lastly, he he talks about God's faithfulness. Verse 9, God's faithfulness. That's also evidence of God's grace. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord God is faithful he's called us into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ wow that's friendship with Jesus you know there's a lot of ways that we try to uh, define fellowship but it's that close full, complete relationship with Jesus. It's that deep, intimate, satisfying relationship. We call it fellowship, the sharing in common. Jesus has shared it all with us. He has made us his 
his friend in that fellowship. That's what God is talking about. We have communion with Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. And, and, and the closest thing that I, as Paul is trying to say when he says that God is faithful and he's called you into fellowship, is that close, intimate, personal, satisfying friendship with Jesus. Are you there? Really, that's what's true. That's what the grace of God has provided. That's evidence of God's grace in our lives. It's, it's a marriage made in heaven. Picture your marriage if you're married. Or picture that best friend relationship. Or picture that sibling, parent, child, parent relationship. It's that close friendship with God. Yeah. You say, whoa, wait a minute. These, again, these are the Corinthians we're talking about and how they live their lives. And yet God showed his grace in, in ministry ability, in a blameless standing, and in God's faithful friendship with the believers there in Corinth. God's grace. Folks, how can we not serve how can we not give all we have for God, for his work? So what, you might say now. So what? Well, what do we need to do in light of what we've heard this morning? Well, I want to share with you the, the, the closing greeting, the final greeting of 2 Corinthians Paul's second Corinthians, the, actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, we talked about it in the past. But 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says to the believers, to those who had experienced his grace, to those who were positionally made holy, declared to be holy, to those he was saying, you need to practice that holiness. And he was saying to them, even at the end of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Why would he say that? Test yourselves. Because he knew they'd experienced God's saving grace. But by the way they'd been living, he was wondering, has it, was it real? He says, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? That's God's saving grace. It's also his sustaining grace. Unless, of course, you fail the test. Unless, of course, you never really trusted Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul wants to believe. He's saying, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, yourselves. Has the grace of God saved you? Are you allowing it to sustain you so that you can serve God and minister to him? I got to ask you this question. What evidence of God's grace do others see? In your life. What evidence of God's grace do others see in your life? Is it there? Is the grace of God active? Is it bringing about regular change 
and growth? Are you becoming more like Jesus so that others see that in your life? In my study, I came across a, a message actually from a friend of ours, David Whiting. And he says this, the proof that God's grace has moved in my life is that there is movement in my life. I like that. It's a great way to say it. The proof that God's grace has moved in my life is that there is movement in my life. He's talking about growth. He's talking about change. He's talking about practical holiness. He's talking about saints living like saints because they are exercising, leaning on, depending on God's help, God's enablement, God's sustaining grace. So I got to ask you as you think about that, what is God doing in your life? Is God's grace bringing movement in your life? Are you moving more towards being like Jesus? Are you moving more towards faithfulness and being involved in serving and all of the, those things that grace enables us to do? Are you using the spiritual giftedness for his church that Paul talked about? The ministry ability? Because we have that blameless standing. Why wouldn't? We give it all that we have. Let me pray. Father, wow, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the saving grace that though we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. You've poured out your favor in forgiveness of sin, salvation, your saving grace in our lives when we believe that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Father, help us in light of that position of holiness. Help us to determine that we're going to practice holiness as we serve one another, as we serve our God together in this place that we call heritage. Oh God, burden our hearts to use the abilities that you've given us for the glory of God and the good of your church. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.